I could take out of my life everything except my experiences at St. Andrew, and I still have a rich, full life. But the last tee shot I hit was more like it, that one in the playoff. Against Biden and Ray. That's right. The best thing to win the Masters, you, you will be here forever, as long as, as you are still alive, so that's the best thing. I'm very happy. Welcome to the 90th episode of Talking Golf History. This episode was filmed and recorded from Landman, which may go down in history as the first ever public golf club. This show is a collaborative effort between the Society of Golf Historians and Story Lounge Film Company, headed up by my dear friend Von Halyard. A special thanks goes out to Will Anderson and all of the great people at Landman for welcoming us into your golfing family. It will go down as one of the greatest two days I have ever spent at a golf course. Today on our show, we dive into the youthful history of King Collins Golf Design, with golf course architect Rob Collins. This will be a two-part podcast, with the majority of part one covering Rob's story about how he found his way into golf design and the amazing history of Sweeten's Cove and their battle through poverty to become an amazing American success story. We end this podcast with the beginning of the next chapter for King Collins, the story of Landman. As always, Thank you for listening, and if you love the show, please take a moment to recommend it to others and give us a rating. Let's jump in to my interview with Rob Collins. Rob Collins, welcome to Talking Golf History. Great to be here. Quite an honor. Thank you. I mean, we just got done playing Landman. It's your latest creation. Where's right? that? Here in Nebraska. Homer, Nebraska, Homer, Nebraska. Home of the Odyssey. Right? What a thrill. It was, it was a thrill, right? It was, it a, was thrill. a thrill. It was a total thrill. You were out there playing. I mean, we came out, what, a day early? You came out a day early, got to play a few holes? Well, I mean, the problem is we don't know which holes we played because we were going cross-country. <laughs> we, like we played to no, like 14. Yeah, we played uh, 11 from 8 tees, played 12, played a few others. That's crazy. It's great. It was awesome. Right. Well, let's spin into this thing. I, I, I was, was going to start off with like the history of public golf, like Van Cortlandt Park. Right, yep. kicks off public golf in the United States in a time where you know, much like today, everybody thinks of private golf, right? The, sure. the private club, country club, and you know, Van Cortlandt sparks, sparks a revolution of golf, of public golf, that then spreads into you know, like Cobb's Creek and Pebble Beach, Bethpage Black, and we have this beautiful renaissance that's actually for the public, right? Because there's there's doctors prescribing golf, right, for health. You know, like all these great <laughs> things coming in the 20s with no real research. And we get into this moment, and it's probably, you know, World War One. I'm sorry, World War II, where the whole perception of public golf and what we play really gets dumbed down. Yeah. And, and, I, and I say this because we're, we're in the middle of this new resurgence of public golf. Sure. And I, let's, you know... This is what you just built, right? And you have the Sweetens Cove. Give us your like little history of, or your take on 
this new renaissance? Like, where do you think it starts? Is it Bandon? Is it, you know, somewhere else? And then how it's taken off and how does it, how does it affect you as an architect? I think you'd have to primarily look at uh, Bandon and the, you know, the destination public courses and, and how successful they've been. And I think they've helped inspire a lot of people to realize that golf um, can be successful. I mean, there's an old adage, which is complete BS, which, you know, is, is that, that golf can't make money. And that's simply not true. And uh, golf can make money, and it can make a lot of money in the, in the right place. And uh, you can make money by not doing stupid things like building a white whale of a clubhouse and wasting money in a, in a lot of bad places. And, um, you know, I think that uh, places like Bandon help people realize that. And, um, you know, as an example, for us personally, we um, just redid the uh, Overton Park golf course um, in Memphis, Tennessee, which is, um, I believe, the longest running, consecutively running municipal golf course in America. Wow. And um, they used to host the Overton Park Junior Open, uh, which they just started back up again this year after our renovation. And uh, that was one of the biggest junior tournaments in the country. And we heard time and time again from all these people in Memphis of how special Overton Park was to them and how they got into the game of golf because of this special place. And so to be able to redo that course, breathe some life into it, and have people back out there again now was, uh, was a thrill, absolutely a thrill. And, um, and then, too, I mean, I think there's been a you know, renaissance, thanks to you and a, and a lot of other people, um, you know, Friday, Andy, no laying up and, and so forth. Feed I mean, the ball. Pe- pe- I mean, yeah, they're doing I mean, more pe- than that. The ball, but, the but I mean, guy. no, yeah. but I mean, but, but you're also bringing attention to architecture and, 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 and how that affects uh, the game. And, and that's, um, you know, really helped drive, I think, a lot of interest in, you know, improving some facilities that with a little freshening up can, can do well financially. I mean, a perfect example is down in Winter Park. My friends Keith and Riley did a great job great there. Course. Yeah, it's really it's a great fun. course. It's a blast. And yeah. the place is, is, is making money. And, um, you know, I think you can do that in a lot of different places. And, and people are just kind of seeing that. So do you, do you believe when you look at these courses, does, does great design inspire great play? And does great play inspire people to play more golf, essentially? Is it the challenge of the strategy? Is it what is that piece that missing piece between a winter park or um, a landman and, you know, a generic municipal golf course that we see, you know, all across the country. Like, what's the difference? I think a place that's kind of dead behind the eyes, you know, it's just, it's not going to inspire people. Um, You know, maybe you're just going out and just kind of checking boxes and just, you know, messing around. It's not really fun. But if you put somebody on a place that is inspiring um, even if they don't know why they like it they know that it's different I mean I've seen that at Sweetens Cove and, and, and people you know may not be able to explain yeah. the, the architectural features and that's fine but a good golf course will do something to you inside of you and, and inside of your mind um, and it will affect you in a certain way um, that, that maybe you can't quite put words to and, um, and, and, you know, that helps, you know, raise, raise the level of 
people's enjoyment of the game. So. Yeah, and we had that, right? I mean, you know, in the in the golden age of golf course architecture, we had great public golf designs, and we lost our way. So, and and this might be an impossible one to answer for you, but like, do you feel like we can lose our way again? I mean, like, have we learned that lesson? Have we have we made that step past? You know, we're never going to do this again. Or is there? A no, I, I think that I mean, the things in life seem to be cyclical, right. and there's. <laughs> <laughs> probably going to come a time when we lose our way and then somebody in 50 years will <laughs> yeah. find their way. Maybe yeah. they'll listen to this podcast and say, Oh, back in the day, <laughs> back in 2022, you know, That's right. they you used to know. have public golf. That's right. <laughs> so, and this is the start of the new Renaissance. That's right. In 2062 until the Renaissance crashes and burns. And then it's all, terrible private golf courses that nobody can play <laughs> yeah and then they're gonna fix that come back come I back like it yeah so how did you get into this like i, I know you've probably told the story <laughs> a billion times on podcasts but like how does rob collins i mean you, you didn't grow up thinking i'm gonna be a golf course architect no i um i was fortunate to take a trip to st andrews in uh 1994 and we watched the uh opening three rounds of the british open at uh at turnberry and watching those guys play shots on that golf course and, and playing playing the old course was like, this is different and really amazing. And I had this really weird idea that I've kind of wanted to be a golf course architect, but like, I didn't even know I didn't even know how you did it because that's before the internet. Like yeah. I knew there was a guy named Tom Fazio and I knew Jack Nicholas designed golf courses, but like I didn't know how you get from that idiotic thought that you wanted to be a golf course architect did <laughs> like it, actually do did it click like i mean like <laughs> this may be a terrible question but you know like you said with the golfer who may not um understand what they're seeing like did you get what you were seeing or did you was it a feeling or what was it i was witnessing shots that there were things happening that I had never seen on a golf course. And one of the indelible memories for me is actually was on the old course. I mean, on the new course, um, we played it the day after we played the old course. And uh, this, my friend's dad hit this ball, was flying up the fairway. And I was like, man, what a great shot this is. He's, he's like going to get to this par five and two or something like that. And it just like turns left. And it's like tracking, tracking, tracking. And then I'm like, oh boy this is going to go in this bunker. And he's like <laughs> up against his face, totally screwed. And I'm like, that's the coolest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> right. Cause there was some money, there was money exchange. Yeah. And it was just like, okay. how did that yeah. happen? This shot that looked amazing. Like this, this bunker had this magnet in yeah. it and it, and it was just this incredible like thing. Yeah. It was a lightning bolt moment. It was like, these things can happen in links golf when the ground is firm and it's running. I, I've never seen that before in Chattanooga. And, and I, I just, it's like, this is unbelievable. I mean, so that's 94. Like how, what's like, all right. So Rob comes back to the United States. I was a college student. Yeah. Um, just typical college kid. Um, had a lot of fun in college. Really didn't know what I wanted to do when I got out. And, um, well, I, I had a dream of being a golf course architect, but I was frankly too... At that point. At I that mean, point. From that trip, yeah. It, it, yeah. But I didn't... You don't go it, to school to become a golf course architect. It wasn't formulated, yeah. you know. And, yeah. and so I was like, I got to go do, you know, have a real job. And so I had a few odd, you know, office jobs and so forth. And I joke that, uh, you know, the movie Office Space was based on my experience. I mean, mm -hmm. I was Peter, basically. Yeah. I, mean, I, I had these awful jobs and 
It's like I'm wasting my life. This sucks. I'm not- Weirdly enough, my cousin is the boss. No I, way. I truly believe that he was the boss. Like oh. They they literally used him for that. Like He's I'm not going to say I'm not going to say who he is, but he was that guy drove the Porsche. Oh my Anybody God. in my family's listening knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> that is amazing. May have testified in front of Senate, the Senate, but whatever. That's a different story. <laughs> Oh, that's um, great. But no, you were you were Peter in this. I, w- I was Peter, and I was like, I've got to do something else with my life, other than TPC reports. Yeah, exactly. I could not put up another TPC report. I could not do another make good for KLRT in Little Rock, Arkansas, because you know some thirty second spot got moved off of Moesha, and the people at BBDO want to. You know, yeah. change. You know, how, they're they're like, hey, how about we, uh, you know, uh, get a couple of Seinfelds? I'm like, are you insane? Like, no. Like, it's a different. Re- and that was like, this is pointless. I hate this. Yeah. And anyway, so the second lightning bolt. The hits. Second, second lightning bolt hits. I go back to graduate school. Finally, got up uh, the courage to do it. Went to graduate school at Mississippi State, got a landscape architecture, worked my way into it. And then I was fortunate to come out of a time, out of school at a time when they were building 300 golf courses a year domestically and and, and was able to get a job with uh, Gary Player Design as an on-site design coordinator. Had a great internship with a guy in Raleigh named Rick Robbins, who was just a prince of a guy. Uh, First guy to ever give me a chance and um, never forget that. And... And I met Tad on my first ever player project, and uh, he and I hit it off and thought, man, we we could do this. We could just have a design build firm, you know, cut kind of cut out the it's middle easy. man. Piece of cake. <laughs> it's easy. It's a piece of cake. That <laughs> was basically it. Was, yeah. And so, um, you know, the the recession kind of forced my hand, and um, I was working on a player project when, when 08 happened, and I had to move back home kind of with my tail between my legs, and had to do a few odd landscape architecture type jobs, you know, um, just to kind of keep keep the family keep help yeah, keep the family afloat, it, yeah. and um, and then and then fortunately the uh, renovation of a nine hole golf course in the Sequatchie Valley fell in my lap, and and Tad and I took that project on and. And that was that. Now, how do they? How they? How do they pick you? How's that? Well, I give a lot of credit to a guy named King Emig, um, who was a local legend um, in in Chattanooga, um, golfing legend. His dad was uh, an even bigger golfing legend, kind of one one of the last um, sort of gentleman amateurs. I mean, he, he was a guy who could have easily played pro. And um, there's a famous story in Chattanooga about. Um, Lou Emig was his name. He was, uh, this is like early 60s. Um, Arnold Palmer had some business in, in Chattanooga. And um, Palmer would come into town on the, kind of on his way down to Augusta. And um, they played a money match out at Chattanooga Golf and Country Club. And Lou won all, the, you know, all these amateur events. I mean, he won the Tennessee State Am a bunch of times. I mean, just an unbelievable player. And Lou's brother was down in the uh, card room, and this guy's like, Palmer is going to kick this guy's ass. And Lou's <laughs> brother's like, I've got $10,000, says he's not. Whoa. This is in, like, 1963. Yeah. And uh, the guy's like, okay. And Lou beat him. Lou beat Palmer. Wow. Like, two weeks before Palmer, like, went down and, you know, was contending in the Masters. Yeah. And King told me this hysterical story about being on his dad's shoulders on the 16th hole 
and Arnold Palmer's walking by, and uh, King goes, gee whiz, Dad, I can't believe you beat him the other day. <laughs> <laughs> like loud enough for him to hear it and everybody. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. And uh, this, this guy just looks at him and is like, yeah, right, kid. And, and Lou just kind of pets King on the leg. and uh, You know, but King was the uh, high school golf coach of the greatest high school golf team in American history, uh, Baylor High School in Chattanooga. And I mean, that's no, no hyperbole. I mean, they, there's, oh my God. I mean, they, they, they had, uh, in, in a very short period of time, they had uh, Steven Yeager, Keith Mitchell, um, uh, Luke List, wow. um, I'm drawing a blank on uh, Harris English. Um, I mean, this was a high school golf team that just absolutely kicked everyone's ass for about 10 years. Yeah. Like a Walker cup team. Oh yeah. They were unbelievable. Yeah. And, um, and so King was very successful with that. And then he was involved with the renovation up at Suwannee where I went to college and I was desperate to get involved with architecture. And I reached out to him through a friend of mine named Mark Stovall, who was the superintendent at Lookout Mountain and said, Mark, can you get me in touch with King? I want to see if I can get in touch with Gil to, Maybe Gil would be nice enough to hire me on to, to help out up there. And I got put in touch with King, and King said, I'd love to help you. Um, I've got one better for you, though. I just talked to Bob Thomas, who owns Sequatchie Concrete, and he's got a little nine-hole golf course in the Sequatchie Valley he'd like you to take a look at. And if King hadn't have given that recommendation with King's presence panache, and, and yeah, panache absolutely. and everything, I don't think we would have gotten it. So you, you go to see this golf course – what, like what's it look like prior to what exists today? So um, Sweets Cove today for those people listening. Well, I, um, the the Sequatchie Valley Golf and Country Club for a long time had played a very important role in in this community, and you know was a fine golf course. It, 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 people loved it. It was it was well cared for, um, but it had fallen on really hard times and had been basic more or less abandoned for a couple of years and Bob bought it back because he it was gut wrenching to him to see this course that meant so much to his family. He'd won the, you know, the club championship nine times or something. And, um, he, uh, he, he wanted to, wanted to get it back. He bought the golf course back and, um, it was in bad shape and it was a stretch to even call it a golf course at that yeah. point. And that's where I said to Reese, his son who was running the job was like, look, man, if we're gonna do this, we've gotta we gotta go all in. You know, we can't just massage a little bunker. It's their here opportunity, but it's also your opportunity. Yeah, it it was absolutely, yeah. but but I said if you re- you know nobody's ever gonna come see this place if you don't really yeah you gotta give them you something. gotta give them something. Yeah. And Sweetens has a lot of this kind of neon sign in the desert flashiness about it, kind of like jumping up and down, like hey, look at me. But it had to because like. I mean, who would come see a nine-hole golf course in rural Tennessee if it wasn't like that? And so that was all very intentional um, to build these kind of elaborate, bold features, um, eccentric (laughs) things going on out there uh, to create some interest. And um, Was there anything, like, too big? Like, did you have any ideas at Sweetens where you're like, whoa, like, we've we've gone too far, like, too, too much? I, I've, I give Reese Thomas 
so much credit for for the success of Sweetens Cove. He was our client. He he trusted us from day one. Really turned us loose. I mean, I, I've said there are some of the most established architects in the world um, would not have been given right. the amount of leeway that, right. that we were given, particularly on a first project yeah. by a client. It's insane. Yeah. So it's, it's an it's, insane it's, offering, it's, it's, right? an, it's an amazing thing that, that, that Reese trusted us as much as he did. And King was a great lover of classic architecture. And we only, King died uh, suddenly um, in, in 2015, the, which was the year we f- were first open, and we have one hole named at Sweden's Cove Number Four, which is we named King after him. And um, the 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 King hole came about because, I mean, King loved quirky, yeah, fun stuff. Who doesn't? I mean, I, I'm always shocked when somebody doesn't. Yeah. Love I mean, that. he just loves that stuff, and he was like, "Man, Rob, it would be amazing if you could find like a Himalayas Par Three out there." Oh hell yeah! And I'm like, uh huh. And then I'm like, oh, on a yeah, flat come course. on, yeah, on a, yeah, yeah. On a, like you can see for yeah. miles, right? So we, get, I, I'm out there exploring around, looking at at it, and thinking, man, it would be it would be really cool if we could do that. And in the fourth hole was this like 200 yard long hole. There was plenty of room to do it. Like build this berm in between, and I'm, I called him. I was like, man, I found the spot. He's like, do it. I'm like, we're doing it. And um, I actually wanted to make the fourth hole at Sweeten's completely blind. Love like it. a like a true like or Prestwick, right? <laughs> like Just, a Prestwick. Yeah. Trust. And and, and Reese um was came up to me one day and was like, Rob, you know, I think we ought to can would you, would you entertain can we tweak this a little bit? I think this is a little too much. Yeah. And I said, "Yeah, man, we can we can tweak it. And that's cool. We'll, we'll just we'll go obscure, yeah, versus... obscure a little bit over on this left side. Where if you're on the way left side of the tee, it's completely blind. But if you come over to the right, it's, yeah. it's open. No risk reward. And in hindsight, that was a better idea than what I had. There's more variety. There's more potential outcomes. There's more variety from one day to the next between pin placement and location yeah. of the tee box." It's and also so, asking the golfer, right? You, you're, you're, you should you just hit got, here. Exactly. You're not dead if you're here. That's right. But you're going to have a half-stroke penalty right. not knowing and where so you're going to And so Reese's land. suggestion that we do that um, was, it was a great one, and it, and it made the golf course better. So Unreal. I mean, I just – and unfortunately, I've been banned from Sweden, so I haven't seen it. Well, you, um, <laughs> I'm going I'm to talk to Matt and see if we can get you off okay. the ban list. But yeah. I, I can't make any promises. I mean, I can just come I in mean, with I'm Vaughn. not really – you know, well, let's not get to – let's not get ahead of I'll, ourselves. I'll be Loner Kuis. <laughs> you, you may need a wig. Yeah, you may need a wig. Yeah. No, I mean – and then so – so you deliver this – I mean – I think it's I, you won't call it this, I'm sure, but like a masterpiece that people are talking about. It's making the top 100 lists of like modern co- golf courses in golf week. It's you know all of a sudden this juggernaut, yeah. right? Yeah. Where you went from this obscure country club to yeah. people are talking about it. I mean, now everybody's talking about, it, but I mean, like, was there ever a shock factor in those early days where you're like? damn, I, I just heard this in like Golf Digest or Golf Magazine. Oh, or yeah, Golf man. Meet. I mean, for sure. Like, you know, Patrick and I, um, like when Tad and I were building it, we knew we had something really special on our hands. And, um, you know, it, it just so turned out that I ended up having to, to take the golf course over and, and became uh, one of the owner-operators of it. And the early days were really, really hard. I mean, we had, we didn't have anybody out there. And Patrick, God bless him, 
sat out on that porch every day um, and, and introduced people to the charms of this place. And, and he started to just slowly build this legion of, of people who were, were if you were build around it, they it. will come and, and right? that was a big credit yeah. to, to patrick and and um and he and i just engaged with with people to, you know over and over again and, and kind of the place just started to build momentum um but I, you know like i'll never forget when he called me and told me that we were you know going to be ranked in the top 100 modern in t- 2016 i mean that was a nine whole course, a nine too, whole right? course. Yeah. you know it's an unbelievable yeah. phone call um, and, and there, there, it just these little things just started to to add up. Uh, the golf course was in the uh, was in the golfer's journal. Uh, the the second issue in this unbelievable um, article. And so, like so much at Sweden's Cove, it all happened naturally and by happenstance. And I've got this sticker on the back of my phone right here with the Sequatchie Valley Golf and Country Club road sign with the stickers with Sweden's Cove Golf Club overlap. My original partner, Ari Techner, and his son, five years old at the time, put those stickers on that sign on opening day, which also was the day that we completely ran out of money and I had to let the the, the superintendent go, which meant that I took care of the golf course by myself for that entire winter until we raised some more money. So... We never thought it was only by necessity that Ari went and put those stickers on the road sign and then come around to this Golfer's Journal article, you know, two two years later or whatever, they made a, you know, they put that in there and it kind of became this thing. And um, it was just like all this organic stuff happened around Sweetens that you just couldn't make it up. Yeah. It, it nothing was fabricated, and that's why that's why it all worked. So, how long did the did Sweeten's overnight success take to be successful? Right? Because yeah. I mean, that's you ever exactly. you hear about people are like overnight. It's yeah. you know this big hit. So we what was uh, overnight we for we uh, we took the golf course over May. I think it was like May fourteenth, two thousand fourteen. Got it open. Uh, we had the worst uh, media opening in golf history since we're talking about history, yeah. we had a box of crackers and uh, an international golf journalist and, and Adam Lawrence came over oh, from, yeah. from England. No, yeah. uh, we had Ron Witten, the you know, golf pre- digest, golf right? digest yeah. like one yeah. of the most preeminent course critics in, in the world and uh, in a box of crackers and a nine hole golf course that was broke. And um, it was like, that was kind of surreal. And then, um, 2015 we struggled through and then the new york times article in 17 was what kind of helped it helped us lift off the ground so you're like 14 15 16 is there ever like an oh crap moment like there were like um, built this oh crap moments every single minute of every day for like a good four three four years And, and at this time you own it yeah and so you're sitting on something that's not making money. Oh, hemorrhaging money. Hemorrhaging money. Yeah, and I'm leveraging everything I've got against that. Just And you have to be thinking, like, this is special, this is unique. It's like, why are people not coming out Yeah. Here? What is wrong? Yeah. What is wrong with people? And it was so immensely frustrating. I mean, I was talking to my wife yesterday on the phone. I said, I swear to God, I think I still have PTSD from that. Right. I mean, and, I, can, um, I can only imagine. And, and um, <laughs> I mean... Thank God it made it. I, I, 
I know what the context was. We were talking about how difficult it is to build a golf course. It's difficult to have someone come in and redo your kitchen. It's difficult to any anything you do um, that involves a project is always different and usually more difficult than you think. Mm-hmm. And um, I think a lot of times when people are on the back side of those things, they're like, I don't think I'd do that again. But then you're like, well, I don't know. It worked out. <laughs> it worked out. But you don't know how it worked yeah. out. It, it's probably like they, they say when, when – um, like when my wife had a baby, these hormones hit them after the baby's born and they forget about all the pain they went through. So it's, it's a biological response so they can that, focus on the love of the baby. That's a, and that's where you're at, right? That's a perfect example. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we made it, you know, thank God. And um, uh, to this day, I, I don't know how a lot, you know. And, um, what, did you did. think the New York Times article coming out well, – at the time, did that feel like a momentous thing, or was it just oh, like it was this huge. is huge? Oh, it was okay. Huge. It wasn't like oh, oh this my god, again. it was huge. I yeah. mean, I'll never forget Dylan DeChair. Um, <laughs> I met Dylan in 2010 when he was doing research for his book 18 in America. Which have you read that? Mm-mm, it's an not. amazing book. Dylan is one of the most brilliant people I've ever met. I could not believe that this kid was 18 years old. I met him through my brother. He was friends with one of my brother's friends from college. And my brother emailed me and said, hey, this kid is writing a book. He's taking a year off between high school and college. And he wants to go around the country and play golf in every state. And can you host him in Tennessee? I said, sure, I'd love to. And I said, oh, I've never been out to the honors course. I'll email David Stone, the superintendent who was, you know, famous superintendent who really, I mean, I think Pete Dye even credited David um, with as much of the success of the honors as, as, you know, Pete gave himself. And David was like, yeah, sure, come on out. And so Dylan and David and I played the honors. And long story short, um, Dylan writes about that episode in his book, 18 in America, which if you're listening, go get the book. It's an amazing book. And And it is so insightful and so well written, you will just be like, I was the biggest dumbass in history when I was 18. Like, <laughs> no, no kidding. Right. I mean, that's yeah. what in everyone, everyone who idiot. reads that book is going to go. I was not like that when I was yeah. 18. Like he was so insightful and so smart. And, and anyway, so that's how he and I met. And then, um, he played some professional golf and, and was shifting his career. Now he works for, uh, golf.com and is, you know, one of the best writers for, for the tour and so forth. But he, um, he said, I really want to write a story about Sweden's Cove. I was like, okay, man, that's cool. And he's like, uh, I think I'm going to try to get it in the New York Times. And I'm like, sounds so like a plan. Freelance writing. Just, yeah. yeah. And he somehow got it in the New York Times. I've, I still have the voicemail on my phone when he called me. And, and you knew that was. No, he, he called me and said, we got it. It's, it's going to be in the New York Times. And I was like, oh, my God, this is insane. And did you know, like, right then at that moment, we're going to make it? Well, no. I thought, I'll tell you the moment I thought we had a chance. Because we were going down in flames in the summer of 2017. Even post-article? Pre-article. Okay. I I had taken, in early 2017, I had taken a $100,000 personal guarantee from from a family friend. And I had leveraged it against my future... Rev, the, the, our contract, I was like going to give if I, if I couldn't pay it back because I was broke. 
I would, you know, if, if King Collins got a job, they'd get a portion of my money from that. If. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, that was it. That was the final straw. And we were just blasting through their money like I couldn't believe it. We were st still floundering in 2017. And after the article came out, I, um, I was in the, I'd been out on the golf course doing some work and I came in the shed and there's these guys with Baltusrol members logos, polos on. And uh, <laughs> I was like, Baltusrol, sweet. I've, that's a great golf course. I've been there. And we started talking. I'm like, what are you guys doing here? And they're like, oh, we read the article in the paper. I'm like, no way. That's amazing. Like, do you guys want to go play the honors or something? And, or Black Creek? <laughs> I think it's not connecting still. Like, you want me to help you get on the honors? Yeah, I can I mean, make like, a phone call for yeah, right? you. guys, like, where, you got, where else are y'all playing? They're like, oh, we're leaving um, this afternoon. We're, we're flying back. I'm like, whoa. Holy shit. Yeah. Destination. Yeah. And then, and then it just, we just, it just was ever so slightly enough. Um, and then, um, you know, 2018 got a little bit better. And then, um, 2019, I'm, I'm, we were always looking for help with an investor. And, um, I met a guy named Mark Rivers in 2019. He was touring around the course and we were talking about a different project that he was interested in hiring us for. And he started asking me questions about Sweetens. And I'm like, I don't think this guy's just interested in this other project. And, at the end of the tour, he's like, yeah, I think we'd be interested in getting involved here too. And he was partners with this guy named Skip Bronson, who's had this really successful uh, real estate development career. And I was like, wow, I mean, this, these are the, these guys, they're the real deal. Yeah. And, um, because we had kissed a lot of frogs. Um, so we'd had some very, very real opportunities. We had turned down one investor, um, before that who's done a lot of successful stuff but it wasn't a good fit for us and um so anyway you know mark and skip brought on this unbelievable team and um i mean one of the craziest nights of my life is um at that point in time andy roddick was involved tom nolan uh w was involved and um in 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 skip and in mark and uh we went out to dinner in chattanooga and uh <laughs> they uh they surprised me and we were standing at the bar and mark's like hey they're here and and i, I thought maybe it was tom and skip i didn't know who was coming in and uh i turned around and it's tom nolan and peyton manning and peyton manning walks up to him and goes hey i'm peyton manning and i'm like Hey, I'm Rob Collins. You, you and, don't need to introduce yourself. Yeah, Peyton. And, <laughs> like and, the and, world knows who you yeah. are. And Mark goes and he, there's, there's your fifth partner. And I was just like, wow. Oh my God. That's and amazing. It was unbelievable. And so we have like this amazing group of people around Sweetens Cove. Now all these different people who love it and, and get it and, and are there to support it. And, um, I mean, it's just, it's, it's just amazing. It is amazing. And, and you know what I, I, what I take from it too, and, or I guess a, a question that rolls off of that is if I overstep, you can correct me, but your architecture is bold. Sure. Right? I mean, I, it is, it, they are bold features. There's massive land movements. There's gore. It's gorgeous. Right. I, I, the question is this, if you hadn't been given that leash, to do all that at Sweeten's Cove, 
would we have a landman today like this? No. You know what I mean? No, no. And that's a great question. And I, I mean, you know, again, I mean, you have to credit Reese for, for giving us that leash. And, um, you know, there's a lot of different factors <clears throat> that are essentially outside of your control um, with each project. And some of the factors that were outside of our control at Sweden's Cove were that it was a dead flat site. It was on heavy clay soil. It was in a floodplain. These are three wins so far. Big, big time wins. <laughs> big time Everybody wins. Want, if you're an architect yeah. right now, yeah. this is three. This is what Go. you want right here. One, two, three. Yeah. Um, it's in a rural area. It uh, will likely never receive a lot of play. And, you know, these are all like, I mean, socioeconomic, environmental. There's all these things that you cannot control. Yeah that you inherit and that all factors into the equation of how do you solve this problem like every every project presents a new problem and you have to identify what that question is and then you have to figure out how to solve it those are the two important things and Sweetens asked a bunch of really difficult questions that in, in mine and Tad's opinion required a certain response and that response was what became Sweetens Cove and um so, you know, had we been given, I mean, why the hell would they give an unknown person a, a good piece of land for their first project? But, but they also didn't give you any rules. That's right. But I right? Mean, exactly. I mean, you, we could have wound up with something that was maybe a little more down the middle, a little more vanilla, whatever, because those are, that's the, that site was asking different questions. Yeah. And because Sweetens had this super unique opportunity with a client who trusted us, that's what came out. And then, you know, I do believe that, um, you know, we've certainly witnessed this, particularly with Will Anderson and, 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 uh, and Brad Roston, our client out in, uh, out in Lubbock and, and some of the other people we've worked with. I mean, we're, we're attracting kind of like-minded people and, um, it's not by, uh, <laughs> it, it's just a Vaughn it, thing. It, Don't worry yeah. about it. <laughs> and Vaughn Halyard. Um, it's, uh, you know, we're attracting people that g get what we're doing and we get in return what, what they're trying to do. And it's, um, you know, I like to have, and Tad too, like we like to have clients that we can form, you know, personal relationships with. And it, that leads to things like Landman. Yeah. Well, and, 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 and let's, yeah. And I'll, I'll, I'll say just real quick, I'll interject. I, I wasn't here when Rand Morissette toured, but Will relayed something to me that he said that, I, that resonated with me. He goes, you know, this place is like not corporate at all. It's like a lot of these... Landman. Landman. Like a, a lot of, you know, modern courses, great and everything, but there's sort of this you know, maybe a little bit of like a corporate stiffness There's a reason to, um, behind it. Yeah, there's a, like yeah. The, yeah, there's, there's like a, a motive, whole bunch of spreadsheets yeah. and yeah. all these Here's our things. mission yeah, statement. Our, <laughs> exactly. We hired a PR firm out of New York and gave them $100,000 yeah. and here's our branding. And, you know, like Landman doesn't have any of that. And, um, and I think that's, I'm just bringing that up to the point that, you know, we're, we're finding these projects with people who are, you know, just kind of, have a vision and want to do something special. And, and that, that's a good fit for us. So you come to Landman, and you see this site, 
Like, and then there'll be people from, you know, all over the world coming here in the, you know, the preview play was this week. I think openings September 3rd, September 3rd. and people are going to flock here. There's zero. Oh, yeah. like, it's so spectacular. I, I have never, I, I said before Landman opened, I said, I had this feeling in my gut about Sweetens when we built it. I knew we had something special. If it could just see the light of day, it could make it. And the feeling I had in my gut then is blown out of the water by a thousand times about this place. Yeah. So walk us through, you know, let's say somebody's um, listening to the show right before they come play it. If they were to see the site prior to King Collins moving dirt, like setting up holes, what do they see? Like, you know, massive mounds. First of all, I guess we have to paint the picture. I yeah. believe we're like 400 feet above the farmland below. Yeah, we're, we're up on a ridge, up on a plateau, essentially, with a lot of really steep rolling hills. And a glacial ridge, uh, right? Exactly. Kind of a, this, this, this ridge that was created by um, glaciers that receded. And there's these gigantic valleys and these gigantic hills that the golf course plays through. Over, <laughs> over, around, around yeah. underneath, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but not really. But um, but in every which way you can wind around and through and over these things, the golf course does that. And um, you know, one thing we did not want to do in the routing was just repetitively stay in these valleys. I mean, you could have had eighteen valley holes, but then you'd have like, these gigantic green to tea connections, and it would have been really monotonous and boring and unpredictable and predictable yeah and so um you know like we were talking tonight i mean try to imagine standing on the first tee and where the landing area is past the bunkers being another 25 30 feet high and the area just short of the bunkers being you know 40 feet lower than it is and like and that's what was there that was right? there yeah. that was what was there yeah. and so there's like a we we changed a 65 70 foot grade differential into something that's now far more gentle and walkable and playable so how do you see that i mean like like we come out you know as as the common golfer the idiot if you will um like me drives down the street and i'm on the road and i see it we all do this right we see this piece of a patch of land and say "Ooh, if i put a golf course there but you're seeing things that don't exist. Yeah. I mean, you know, like for the first hole, for instance, I mean, you know, we wanted, we knew, Tad and I knew we wanted to start with a par five. We shot this ridge way in the distance. It was 585 yards away. I said, all right, that's number one. And the answer to your question is, is that like, you know, we have enough experience and Tad in particular, I mean, he's as experienced as anyone and, and, understanding equipment and construction methods and everything and, and what's capable, what you can do, what you can't do. Tad set up the construction program for this project, which was brilliant. And, um, you know, it's like we knew that with a couple of D8s and we ended up getting some scrapers in here, we knew what those machines can do with it. really talented operators. I mean, we worked with some of the most talented people in the world on this project. I mean, it's crazy. It was like an all-star roster of people that were working here. And that was another serendipitous turn of events. You know, this golf course was built during COVID and there was a little bit of a dip there for a little while. And we were able to work with some guys, um, you know, that probably normally wouldn't be able to work with like, um, 
you know, Jeff Bradley was out here um, from Cor Crenshaw. We had a, an appearance for uh, Jimmy Craig and Dave Axland. Um, you know, they, they helped us out. And then, of course, Mark Berger was here. He built 14 of the greens, yeah. absolutely crushed it. You know, our guy Gus, who built Sweetens, was here. We just had like these just John Ellsworth. I mean, unbelievably talented people here. Uh, did did Heritage Links? Was Heritage Links? Yeah, were yeah. they here? A little yeah. inside joke yeah. on the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, that, that that is an inside. Uh, but I will say, Heritage did help us out with some some bunker liner. But that was uh, there was a gentleman earlier asking about. I think he asked you three times. Three times he in was, a row. He had he had, had, he, he had, had uh, a, a, a few extra. Um, what do they call them? What are those drinks? Uh, alcohol. Yeah, alcohol. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but yeah, we we were lucky to work with some amazingly talented guys, and um, you know they just pounded it out and. Um, there's a little thing in the clubhouse, a little picture that kind of shows the routing before any construction was done. And you can see, you know, these massive ridges and it really gives you a sense of, of how it was done. And, and it makes no sense. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I look at it. I'm yeah, like, like Wait, what's it, that? I, I mean, I know I, I come out here and I wasn't here. I know Vaughn, Vaughn made the trip and I, I you're saying, yeah, we're going to, we're going to play over this ridge. And I'd be looking at it like there's not a golf hole there. Yeah, I just well, you're, you're, I think you're sugarcoating what you do a little bit because, again, I, let me ask the process. Let's walk through the process so you know the opening hole is going to be a par five. You have a general idea of where the green's going to be. Yep. Is is your process? Are you working kind of organically when you're when you're shaping that hole, or you do you draw it out? Well, there What's was an, there like? was an initial drawing, but those really are just there for inspiration uh, and to kind of give people an idea. Um, and then it's all done in the field. I mean, we we're re, we're, we we are a firm that puts a lot of trust in in the guys in, in the seat of the machines because they're very very talented people. We want guys engaged in in into the project. You I know, mean, not, if I'm a shaper not, not, for you, I mean, they would love it because they've got to love well, it. Well, they love it because they're getting to put their own input in. Yeah, um, they're making their own mark. They're, they're, you're not just squeezing them to death. Um, you know, but it's also like you know, we'd like a gentle undulation here. It's yeah. go out and be a give me a rock star. Yeah, do some fun stuff, and we'll react to it. And then, you know, what I say is is like we give the guys a box in which to work. Okay. If they understand the confines of that box and what we're looking for, then 99 times out of a hundred, what they lay down is going to be where they're going to crush it. Um, there's always going to be little edits here and there, but you know, you just let them go and then react to it and tweak and do this and that. And then eventually you've got to finish golf hole. And, um, you know, one of the things about this landscape is, I mean, it's so vast that the guys could do what's called hiding their fill. You know, so if they made a gig- if they made a twenty foot cut off of a ridge and filled it into a valley to make the valley and the, the ridge relate better and, and be walkable and playable for golf, you could tie back into the natural grade in a way that once all the native grasses are in and they're starting to grow in things are maturing out here at Landman. you look at these things and you for instance on number one you would never know that that hillside was 25 feet higher no it doesn't look no, like it no it, looks it feels very it feels like a roll of the hill that's right and so our goal was 
almost like a reverse engineering in a way, like move all this dirt and then lay the golf course down on top of it. And it's like our goal was to have what appeared to be a just very natural presentation, original lay of the land golf course that's been here forever, but it took a lot of earth movement to get there. Yeah. Does that, does that yeah. make sense? Yeah, 100%. That, that, was, that was the goal. And, and it needed to happen. Like that's that. right. Right. Absolutely. And that's so, the way to honor this land and, and make it work. So can you name any examples of a shaper out here? You don't have name names that did something that was so outrageous. Like you're like, Ooh, I would love that, but they'll murder me in my sleep if I make that happen. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there were, there were some, um, like any project, it takes a little bit of time to get into the flow. Okay. And it's like um, early days of the cut, yeah, yeah shaping. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so there were there were a few grains um, that were built out here. Vaughn was out here, um, one on thirteen and, and one on sixteen. That when I saw it, I looked at it, and my first thought was, Rory McIlroy could not play this golf hole. Yeah. And it, it wasn't what we'd asked for, and. Um, we, it was far too difficult. Yeah. And um, our number one thing with this place was that it needed to be playable and it needed to be walkable. And it is an extreme environment. There, the wind blows its ass off. Um, it, it, you know, in its natural setting, the hills are too steep for golf. We had to do things, we had to soften everything down and give enough width to, to, to have playability. And yeah, I mean, the, the greens are kind of in a lot of sense, like, like a lot of golf courses, I guess the star of the show and they're going to out here and they're going to steal a lot of attention. And, you know, people say, Oh, you know, these greens are crazy. I don't think they say that in a, in a pejorative sense. I think they just, they're, they're crazy or whatever. And, but that is too, in my opinion, too simplistic of a, explanation of these greens there give your explanation of your like your thought process on greens these these greens are i mean i've never seen a set of greens like them um and they are bold but at the same time tad and i knew and this is back to the point of the guy couldn't play into the Roy McElroy grain or nobody could was like, we knew we could not build 18 Sweetens Cove greens out here. If you've been to Sweetens, the greens there are very bold. They're oftentimes segmented, um, that we had to pump up everything to make it work or be interesting at Sweetens. Here we had to tone everything down. So all of the greens at Landman really are after the dirt was moved, basically lay of the land, what I would call a lay of the land green. You can run it onto most of them, um, or pretty much all of them. Um, but unlike the greens at Sweetens, um, there are massive areas, for the most part, seven being an exception, um, of, of pinnable surface, you know, 2% or less. Um, you know, to me, number one, you know, it's just kind of a nice, it's bold, but it's, you know, got kind of some cool rolling contours. Two's a cool boomerang green. I mean, I guess the shape's eccentric, but there's nothing, I don't think, that's outlandish in the center of the green. Three, you know, 
it's it's a cool shape got some cool stuff going on play it off different sideboards and things but basically what we were trying to do was just build 18 really distinctive greens that fit into the setting where they are on the golf course makes sense yeah. how, how does seven set itself apart seven sets itself apart in that um the the green setting is is quite steep um and uh the green that was shaped there it's a it's a short par four which i'm a sucker for and and the ideal line is to come in along the long axis of the green and it's this kind of cascading green that comes down that's um it's kind of like a little bit more segmented version of like 16 at pasta tempo in a, in a way i mean it's this <clears throat> kind of jaw-dropping green they're like oh my god is there any pinnable area oh my there? gosh no you're right you're like i can't i don't think there's um my ball's not going to stop on that <laughs> i think we, we had two stop on the green mine and ty ty birdies the hole i think he went like ty's yeah. a little 13 year old yeah. he's not little yeah. he's 13 year old out here shoots one under par first time ever seeing the course and he, he sticks that to like 10 feet i am a coward i go <laughs> up the big part i just yep. take the lazy shot yep. and lay one out i've got 20 feet and i'm happy He's just firing at flags the yeah. whole day long. It's it's amazing, but I mean that green. But man, that's bold. It's bold. It's, it's almost like it's, if you can imagine, it's almost like the letter the, P. Yeah, that's the green that almost. I mean, the, 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 to me, is the most marginal. Well, if you were going to talk about a green that was really pushing the envelope in terms of playability, number seven is the one that to me pushed the envelope the most. But but it's a short par four. But it's a short par four, and. It is completely playable, and it's really a fascinating green in that there are so many different ways to access the different locations from where, wherever you are. And, and that, to me, is very McKenzie-esque in how he described, like, the Sitwell green. I mean, really and truly, I'm, I'm just realizing this and just talking to you, that while we did build a homage to the Sitwell green in 17, which that'll take a lot of oxygen out of the room when people play this place, this 34,000 square foot green with these massive, massive yeah, transitions. Unbelievable. Um, number seven is almost more, it's more like the original Sitwell in a way. Yeah. Because it's more these little pockets in how yeah. McKenzie. Or, like, or even just, like the original Augusta <coughs> National Greens, right? Yes, that were exactly. just funky and like just cool and, and slow. And weird and, and wild. Yeah. And, but like you can, you get in the right spot, man, you can get there. You get in the wrong spot, buddy, you're in trouble. But you can still get there. You right? can, but like, if you play a really clever shot, yeah. you know, you can, you can bank it off of this contour and, and get it there and, and you'll be fine. But that's where the local knowledge comes yeah. in of like, figuring that stuff out. And I think that's really, really cool that we have that green on this golf course. And then it's followed by number eight, which is this little, you know, fall away green. That's basically a pretty flat contour falling away from you, but it's like really treacherous and scary. And it's a completely different experience than, than seven. And each green has its own kind of character and life about it. I think that um, number one, keep the place from ever being monotonous and 
it'll provide a, a you know a, a, a challenge each and every day that's different depending on the wind and where the pin is. Well, I hope we left you wanting to hear more about Landman, because in episode ninety one, Rob Collins will dive into which holes around the world inspired Tad King and Rob Collins to design Landman. We will touch on each of Landman's amazing 18 holes, what they remind Rob of, and some of their amazing design characteristics. I promise it'll be another amazing podcast. A special shout out to Will Anderson and the folks who work at Landman. Thank you for making Vaughn and I feel at home at the world's first ever public golf club. A final thank you to Vaughn Halyard and the Story Lounge Film Company for being a valued friend and partner in golf history. Until next time, yours in golf history, this is Connor T. Lewis.